Well, good morning to you this morning. For those of you I have not had the privilege of meeting yet, my name is Sue Ann, and I am the women's director here at Christ Church, which means my office is actually out of our Oak Brook campus, but on Sunday mornings I get to go between the two campuses, and so I get the best of both worlds to see what God is doing here and what God is doing there and what God is doing as a part of this church, and it's an amazing thing to be part of. So it's just good to be here with you this morning and share a few reflections on this series that we're going to start on relationships this morning called chemistry. And I have to say, especially after watching that bumper, I actually had not seen that, that it's a little ironic that I'm preaching to kick this off because I was a journalism major in college. I have not taken a chemistry class since my sophomore year in high school, and I know that I did very, very poorly on it. So I thought, I don't know what I know about chemistry. You're going to see that my analogy about that is going to break down pretty quickly, but I'm good at the relationship stuff. So if you can hang in there with me, hopefully we'll learn some stuff together this morning. Well, let's do a little creative exercise as we get started. We'll get our minds moving now that the worship team has our spirit moving. But imagine with me for a minute that when you walked in here this morning, there was a piece of paper on your chair. And on that piece of paper was a list of character traits. And let's say that I asked you to rate yourself on these character traits on a scale of 1 to 10. And let's say the first one was intelligence. You guys can actually pretend like you're doing this in your mind. So intelligence. Got it. Attractiveness. Feel your muscles. How's your tan today? Think it all through. Give yourself a score. How about creativity? Charm. Generosity. Kindness. How about self-awareness? All right, you all got your scores? Okay, now let's take a next step, next step further, and let's imagine for another minute that we take that piece of paper and we draw a line down the middle, and then we hand that per- piece of paper to the person next to us, and let's, for the sake of argument, say the person next to us, I mean, if there's no one sitting next to you, you're just going to have to imagine someone sitting next to you, but let's say there's someone that knows you pretty well. There may be a spouse, there a parent, a child, a friend. Or maybe there's someone that you work really closely alongside and they're your boss or your colleague. And let's say that I ask them now to take those same list of quality traits and to start rating you on how they think that you are in those areas. And then I said, okay, go ahead and hand it back to that person. So when you are staring at that piece of paper and you see the quality traits that now someone else is giving to you, how how are you feeling about yourself now? What's going on inside of you? How many of you are like, you know what, I knew it. Ten across the boards, I got a ten on everything, they gave me a ten on everything, I'm doing great. Yeah, one, one up front right here, I'm just saying. Let me ask you this, how many of you are willing to at least admit that it's possible that the answers may come out a little bit differently. And that maybe the person next to you didn't think that you were all as cracked up as you thought you were. And maybe in that last category called self-awareness that you gave yourself a 12 and maybe they gave you like a a 1 or a 2. 
Anyone willing to admit that that just could maybe be possible? Just maybe. Do you know that research shows that the person next to you is actually two times more likely to be accurate about who you are and how the people around you experience you than you are about yourself? Why do you think that may be? Maybe it's because all those character qualities that we see are the things that we really want to be. We desire to be that person. And so we start to rate ourselves on the person that we aspire to be. Which I guess is all good and fine, except here's the bad news. That the person next to you, the person that lives with you and works alongside of you, doesn't do those things with the person that you aspire to be. They do those things with the person that you actually are. And the truth about the person that you actually are and the person that I am and the person that we all are together is we are beautifully and wonderfully and fearfully made and we are created in the image of a holy and perfect God. And at the exact same time, the person that you and I actually are is also flawed and broken and injured and filled with stories, unique stories that include joy and celebration and triumph and victory. And those same stories also include pain and wounds and mental models and truths and lies about who we are, how we're wired, and how we interact with the people around us as we move through this world. And those stories that we carry, those stories affect everything we do and every person that we come in contact with, whether we know them very deeply or we know them just as an acquaintance. And so I wonder as we begin this conversation on relationships this morning, is how many of us are aware of the stories in our lives? How many of us even maybe more so, are not only aware of our stories, but are you aware of the part that our stories play when we come into contact and we come into relationship with the people in our lives? Because what happens when we bring the people that we actually are into contact with another human being, the elements, here's my chemistry analogy, the elements and those relationships react. It's just what they do. It's inevitable that they're going to react. And they're going to either react peacefully, like taking a drop of food coloring and putting it in a pitcher of water. And when you do that, you just kind of watch it swirl around and change colors and it's harmonious and it's beautiful and it's pretty to look at. It can either happen like that or they can react in a way, how many of you have done the science experiment with your children where you drop the Mentos and the Diet Coke 2 liter and the lid just pops right off? Anyone had that experience? Because that can happen too. It can react violently. And so the question we're going to ask ourselves is actually not which reaction we want to create. That's actually next week's sermon that Eric is going to bring to you this morning. But the question that we're going to ask ourselves this morning and where we're going to begin this conversation is what does it look like to turn the mirror on ourselves 
and not say what causes that person to react the way they do, but what elements do I bring into this equation that cause me to react the way I react? Which, honestly, I'd rather preach next week's sermon because I think this question is a lot harder to unpack than looking at other people and trying to figure out why they react the way that they do. Paul says in Romans, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Don't just blindly put tens down your side of the paper because that's the person that you want to be. Take some time and think about yourself and think about yourself with a clear mind where nothing else is clouding your judgment and see the kind of person that you actually are. Be self-aware. And let me ask you this. Why do you think we're so bad at self-awareness? That first little exercise we did, why do you think it's so much easier for other people to see in us those traits that maybe we don't want to see in ourselves so much? You know, there are tons of psychology books and leadership books written about this, and, and I am not equipped to share all of those things with you, but from my own personal experience, I can at least put forward two reasons why I think we're bad at it. The first reason is because self-awareness is painful. Does anyone like to get up in the morning and stumble out of bed and walk into the bathroom and flip on the light for that first time and see the person that's staring back at you? Does anyone like to just see all the wrinkles and the skin blemishes and like all those weird things going on in us? And oh, that's the moment, right? You take out your phone and you take a selfie and you post that, right? Because that's the person that you want everyone to see. No, of course not. It's painful for us to intently look at the mirror and to see ourselves with no filters and no makeup as we actually are. Or maybe... It's not just painful to look at ourselves, but it's painful to look at some of those stories, those narratives that have traveled with us throughout our life that maybe we are not responsible for, but still we are living out and they cause us to react a certain way. And gosh, we don't want to look at that. It's painful. We don't want to rip off those band-aids. It's painful to look at those stories that have injured us and caused us to be sometimes the way that we are. So self-awareness is painful. The other reason I would say we're bad at it, at it is because we're busy. Life moves fast. It's like the scenery is just rushing by, and we've got work to do, and we have kids to run around, and we have bills to pay, and we have emails to return, and yards to mow, and friends to see. And sometimes I think, I don't know about you, but I think, gosh, who has time to pay attention to those deeper things, those deeper narratives and stories that are going on in their lives. Who, who wants to do that? Because not only is it painful, we don't have the time, but the question then becomes, is it worth it? Do we do it anyway? And you know, if we look at the life of Jesus, if we see that he spent a great deal of his time calling people into self-awareness, asking people to hold the mirror up to their faces and to be honest about what they see. Do you remember the conversation with the rich young ruler when he comes to Jesus and he says, Master, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, knowing 
that part of his story is that his heart is tied to his possessions. And so Jesus says, you need to sell everything, give everything away, give it to the poor, and then you can come follow me. And what happens? The rich young ruler goes away sad because he didn't like what he saw when he put his face into the mirror. Do you remember the paralyzed man who was laying at the Jerusalem gate for 38 years waiting to be healed? And Jesus comes along and he sees Jesus and he cries out to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and he says, man, what's the question he asks him? Do you want to get well? That's a moment of self-awareness. The guy had to turn his face to himself in that mirror and say, do I want to get well? And good thing for him, his answer was yes. What about when Jesus visits the home of Martha and Mary and Martha's like running around sweating and she's cooking and she's cleaning and Mary's just kicking back, sitting, kind of enjoying the whole thing, listening to Jesus. And Martha reacts. She takes this moment and she lashes out at Jesus and she says, tell Mary to help me. What is she doing? And Jesus says, Martha, Mary has chosen what is best. Leave her alone. Do you think in that moment that maybe Martha didn't have a moment of self-awareness where she had to look inside of herself and see what was causing her to react the way that she reacted? Or what about when Peter was having breakfast with Jesus on the beach after Jesus was resurrected and Jesus tells Peter, you know what, you, you're going to die soon and it's not going to be a pretty death. And Peter's response is to look over his shoulder at John and say, well, Jesus, but what about him? And Jesus says, I'm not talking to John. I'm talking to you. I'm asking you about your life and your story. Don't worry about what John is doing. Or what about when Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount to thousands of followers says, you know what, don't judge. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, turn the mirror to yourself. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Over and over again, Jesus ignores how painful or inconvenient it may be for his children and he calls them into moments of self-awareness, not to injure them or not to harm them, but because he loves them. And he came to call them into a life that is rich in his presence and the presence of others. He does it because he loves them. And I think responding to the invitation of Jesus in these moments, and it really is responding to the invitation of Jesus, it takes courage and I would say that self-awareness begins with asking what else. When Eric and I um, moved here, actually, let me back up one minute and ask you this first. Have you ever had one of those moments, okay? One of those moments where you find yourself all of a sudden reacting. You're having a Diet Coke Mentos kind of moment, right? And you just react to a situation. And you know that what you're doing in that moment is wrong. You know you're being defensive. You know you're being emotional. You're angry. You're irrational. The things that you are saying, you know you don't mean. And yet it's like the aspiring you is floating over top of the real you. And it's like, stop. 
Stop saying that. Stop doing that. But whatever happens, you just, for whatever reason, you can't make it stop. I've never had a moment like that with my husband or my children, I'm, I'm sure. I scored pretty uh, high on the self-awareness, in case you're wondering that part. These are good moments to stop and ask yourself, what else? I had a friend of mine, her name is Nicole, and uh, when Eric and I moved here 13 years ago, um, I was in a hard season. It was the first year that we had lived here. I didn't know anybody, and not a single soul. And Eric was off doing his thing. I was an at-home mom. I was trying to parent two toddlers. I was feeling very disconnected. I was sad. I was lonely. And sometime during that week, my brother had called me and let me know that his mother-in-law had passed away very unexpectedly. And I don't hear my brother cry a whole lot, and he could barely get the words out on the phone. And I was just down. And my friend Nicole had seen me somewhere that week, and she called me, and she said, hey, I was just thinking about you. You didn't really seem like your, yourself very much. And I said, you know... I didn't want to, I kind of thought about it for a minute. I thought, I don't want to be that friend. I don't want to be the like high maintenance needy friend that just launches right into all my stuff. And so I said, you know, I just, I didn't have a very good week. And she said, why? What's, what's going on? And I said, well, you know, my brother called and his mother-in-law died very unexpectedly. And I'm just, I'm feeling really sad for him and my sister-in-law. And Nicole said, well, what else? And I said, well, you know, I'd like to go to the funeral, but I'm so far away from home. I just, I don't think there's any way that I could do it. And she said, all right, what else? And I said, well, I guess it's just, it's making me really homesick. And I kind of stopped for a minute and she said, okay, what else? And I said, you know, I guess I just want to be somewhere where I feel known and I feel loved, and, and, and I know other people, and I, I know their stories, and I love them. And she said, okay, what else? And I thought, my Lord, how many times is she going to ask me this question? What else is there? And I said, you know what? Sometimes I feel like I'm the only one who feels this way, and I don't really know that it's going to get any better. And, you know, that conversation was 13 years ago. And I still think of it all the time when I'm having those moments where I'm circling over myself when I'm reacting in a way that I shouldn't be because I think, you know what, there is something else going on here that I need to be aware of. And I wonder if we don't need to have those what else moments to have the courage to admit that sometimes the reasons that we're actually screaming at our children or withholding love from our spouse or maybe dominating every conversation we are part of, or maybe we're demanding perfection from everyone around us, or maybe we can't find it in our hearts to trust or forgive or to extend grace. Or maybe we're one of those people, it's just, we got to micromanage everything. We got to control everything that we're a part of. Or maybe we go in the opposite direction and we just throw our hands up and say, you know, I don't really care about anything. I wonder if those aren't the moments where we need to have a what else conversation because the deeper stories that we carry within us and the narratives that make us react and do the things that we do, we need to know those things because they affect the people around us 
and they affect our life with God. In a book called The Road Back to You, which I highly recommend if anyone wants to know more about this, I can tell you after the service. But the author of this book says this, most folks assume they understand who they are when they don't. They don't question the lens through which they see the world, where it came from, how it shaped their lives, or even if the vision of reality it gives them is distorted or true. What we don't know about ourselves can and will hurt us, not to mention others. As long as we stay in the dark about how we see the world and the wounds and beliefs that have shaped who we are, we're prisoners of our history. We'll continue going through life on autopilot, doing things that hurt and confuse ourselves and everyone around us. And friends, this is not the abundant life that Jesus calls us to do. He doesn't want us to be prisoners to anything. And so we need to be aware of the deeper stories and the narratives that cause us to react and to respond the way that we do. And I'll just say that if you need help with that, our staff here is amazing at connecting with counselors. If there's any therapists in the audience, maybe you just start passing out your card now. I don't know. But if you need help with that, there's people here that can help you, and I want you to know that today. So don't be afraid to have the courage to reach out. Secondly, self-awareness is rooted in humility. You know, we kind of went deep first. We're talking about some of those deeper narratives in our life that we need to pay attention to. But what about the everyday moments? What about how we react to, say, the coworker in our life whose personality just grates on our every nerve? Some of you I hear laughing too hard. You might, <laughs> you know, when you start laughing, you know it's you, right? Um, what about the teacher who has been writing your kid's case all year long? Or what about the coach who's playing everybody else's kid while your kid is on the bench? Or even worse, what about the referee who just made the bad call, who cost your team the game? How do we react to that? What about the neighbor who won't trim the bush in the yard that hangs over your side of the fence and you got all that funky stuff falling in your yard? Or what about the waitress who took so long to bring your food? Or heaven forbid, the jerk, because they have to be a jerk, right, who cut you off in traffic? How do we react to those people? How do we react in those situations? And the first thing I want to say is maybe that instead of reacting, we need to start responding. A reaction is from the gut. It's quick. It's impulsive. It's not very well thought out. And usually it leaves a lot of scars with whoever we've reacted to along the way. And it leaves us feeling pretty lousy about something that we've said or done. But a response is the opposite. A response is usually intentional. It's well thought out. There's usually some more grace in a response. And usually it leaves the person on the other end feeling a lot better about our interaction. A reaction is when you walk by the homeless person in the streets of Chicago and you feel something, and so you pull a couple bucks out of your pocket and you throw it in the coffee can and you keep going on your way. A response is when you walk by that same person in the streets of Chicago and you still feel something, 
but you resist the urge to just pull money out of your pocket, and instead you go home and you research poverty in the city and you come up with a plan to give monthly to the Chicago Food Bank. That's a reaction versus a response. And I wonder if we don't need to be people, as people who follow Jesus, if maybe we need to choose to be responders instead of reactors and that our reacting, our reacting or our response needs to be rooted in humility. First Peter says to clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And I love this word clothe because clothes are something you wear around all the time. At least I hope you do, okay? When you get up and you get dressed in the morning, you put on your clothes and you wear that outfit for most of the day or a significant portion of the day. You don't get to lunch and say, oh, I think now I'm going to choose to put my shirt on. And then maybe when it's time to have coffee with someone, you think, oh, I'm going to, you know what, maybe now I'll put on my pants. And then for that 3 o'clock meeting, I'll go ahead and, and put on my shoes, right? We don't get dressed that way. We get up, we put on our clothes, and we wear them all day long. And I think about that when I'm thinking about this clothing yourselves in humility because when we clothe ourselves in humility, we don't need to choose or to think about which situations we are going to respond in humility at. It's the clothing that we have on. It's just the natural response that comes out of us. And so when we're standing in line at Costco and it's tasting twice as long as it should because the checkout person is new and they don't know what they're doing, we don't have to say, oh, you know what, I've got to pull out my humble shirt now. We're already wearing it. And so our response when we get there, because we're self-aware, is one of humility and one of grace. Why is this important? Because our response and responding to humility is not just about being a nice or a kind person. It's directly tied into our identity in Jesus Christ and what we believe is true about his character. Philippians 2 says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... I hope you've experienced those things in Christ. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. And listen to this. Do, not, or sorry, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men, being made in the likeness of you and I, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, when we as followers of Jesus respond to situations with humility and grace, when everyone around us 
everyone else around us is reacting. When we respond out of love for an identity in Christ, when we do this, we become attractive witnesses of Jesus Christ. People notice. People notice when you respond instead of react, when you have a moment of self-awareness and you say, I'm, I'm clothed in humility because of God who I serve is humble, and so I am going to respond in this situation. When we do that, people notice. And people say, hmm, there's something different about that person. And I wonder where that came from. And we do our small part to make every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father because we are having a moment of self-awareness and how we are interacting with this world. Lastly, self-awareness leads to repentance. 2 Samuel chapter 12 records a conversation between King David and the prophet Nathan, who is also a trusted advisor and friend. And maybe you are familiar with this story and this conversation, but it happens after David makes a very poor decision in his life. And David is the king of Israel, and he is one time on the top of his rooftop in, in the palace, and he sees a beautiful woman across the way who is bathing named Bathsheba, and he decides that he wants her. And so he doesn't have a moment of self-awareness. In fact, he blows right by the self-awareness, and he invites Bathsheba to come to him, and they sleep together, and he impregnates her. Now, there's a couple problems with what happens here because, number one, the first problem is Bathsheba's married, which if that's not a problem enough, the second problem is that his, her husband, Uriah, is off to war. Okay? He's not even home. And David tries this whole thing to cover his sin, to invite Uriah back so maybe he can have an intimate night with his wife. But you know what? Uriah is a loyal guy, and he refuses. And so bottom line is if David shows up on Jerry Springer, right, and they do that paternity test, David's the baby daddy. Like, there's no getting around it. Like, David is it. And so he doesn't know what to do, and so he panics, and he wants to cover his sin. And so... He does one of the most despicable things that maybe we see throughout Scripture, and he, he decides to have Uriah killed at the front lines of battle by his own men. And that's exactly what happens. And Nathan sees this whole thing go down, and Nathan is not happy with what he saw. And so Nathan comes to David in a very humble way, and he says, Hey, David, let me tell you a story. And he says, you know what, there was this rich guy, and he had everything that he could ever want, all the food, all the livestock, everything was at his disposal. And there was this poor guy, and the poor guy had nothing. In fact, all he had was this one little lamb, and he slept with this lamb, and he took care of this lamb, and Scripture even says he called the lamb his daughter. And a visitor came to town. And the rich man needed to feed the visitor. And so instead of taking from what he had and all of his stuff, he decided to take the poor man's little lamb and kill it and give it to the visitor. And David hears this story and he immediately reacts. And he says, that's horrible. Kill the man. The man deserves to die. And then Nathan looks at David and says, David, you... You are that man. And David had a choice right here. 
He had a choice whether he was going to turn the mirror on himself or whether he was going to deflect and deny and get defensive and angry. And David chooses to be self-aware. And David chooses to look at the deeper narrative. And he says, I have sinned. What can I do to make it right? And actually, at that point, David can't make it right. And he suffers some pretty devastating consequences for his actions. But what we see here in Scripture from here on, David has a change of heart because in this moment, he knows he's called to a deeper relationship with the Lord. And we actually see as David goes on that he writes Psalm 51. He throws himself at the mercy of God. It's like he got up out of bed and he stumbled into the bathroom and he saw his ugly self in the light. And instead of turning off the light, he turns it up bright and he throws himself at the feet of God and he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit. Sustain me. And then he goes on to write in Psalm 139, 24, See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David has a moment of self-awareness in which he humbles himself and he chooses to respond instead of react. And he goes into a deeper relationship with the Lord. So Eric and I have been working on a little project in our backyard. We have this in our backyard, uh, a two-story patio, this beautiful brick patio that was put in by the people before us that we have enjoyed immensely for the last 13 years. Except over the course of time, it's also gotten to be um, a pain of the neck to take care of because weeds and moss have started to work its way in between the bricks and we go out there and every year several times a year we've got a we've got a weed and spray and argue with our kids about who's going to do it and how do we make it look nice and so eric came to me a couple weeks ago and he said you know what here's what we're going to do we're going to fix this problem once and for all we're going to actually pull up the patio brick by brick We're going to pull up every brick, and we're going to take this brush, and we're going to scrape off every brick, and then we're going to put the bricks back down. And I said, you know what? You out ya. Anyone say that to each other in our house? You out ya. You out of your mind if you think that we're going to do this. You're crazy. And so he was pretty persistent, and so we decided that, all right, I guess this is what we are going to do and I have to say as it turns out I've actually enjoyed the project because I go out into the yard every night and I've been putting on my gloves I've been turning on some music and I've been picking up the bricks this is literally one of them I don't know if you can see it I'll clean this up later (laughs) and you just start scraping I'm out there, and I scrape, and I scrape. And Clay, my son, said to me the other day, he said, you know what, what? why do you like it so much, Mom? Every night I'm like, hey, I'm going out to scrape some bricks. Do you see that dirt flying around? Hey. And he's like, what? Mom, what is it? Why do you like this so much? And for me, it was a what else moment. 
I had to think to myself, why do I, why do I like this? And I said, you know, I don't know, there's something kind of therapeutic and something kind of healing about seeing something that's so dirty start to be made clean. There's something kind of healing about seeing something finally the way it was originally intended to be seen. And he said, Mom, but isn't that a lot of work? And I said, you know what? Yeah, it is. In fact, my back hurts and my hands get tired, my forearms get sore, my fingers hurt and the mosquitoes come out at night and I'm getting bit by some stuff and it's messy. But I said, you know what, buddy? Think how good it's going to look when we're all done. And then I had to humble myself and go to Eric and say, you know what, you were actually right. He said to me that earlier this week, he told the kids, he said, you know, you can either be right or you can be married. <laughs> so, so this time he got to be right. And so I went to him and I said, you know what, you were right. This was the better way to do it. It's hard. It's taking way longer than we thought. He said it'd take about three hours. We're on four weeks. It's inconvenient, it's painful, but it's the right way. And it's the good way because as we're pulling up these bricks, we're seeing all kinds of stuff that we didn't know was underneath there. And we're seeing weeds that look like it's one weed, but in fact, it's weaving itself all the way through the patio. And so we're taking up the bricks and we're just starting to scrape them off one by one until it gets clean. And friends, I think this is what God wants for us when we come to what else moments, when we come to places of self-awareness. He doesn't do it because he wants to cause pain or because he wants to inconvenience us. He wants to do it because he wants us to be clean. He wants us to grow in his grace. He wants us to say, you know what? I really got to start thinking of others more than I think of myself. I need to value others above myself. I need to not react to all these situations because some narrative is going on in my life. I need to respond with humility and grace because it brings glory to my Father. And so, friends, as we close here this morning, I would just encourage you, if you don't know where to start with any of this, just pick up a brick. Pick up a brick Ask God what else. Start praying and see what he wants to clean. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning. And Lord, for the opportunity, as humble as it is, to turn the mirror on ourselves for just a moment and to see what you want us to see about the places in our lives, Lord, where we are reacting in ways and it's hurting the people around us, Lord. You want to heal us and you want to make us new. And so I pray this morning, whatever those areas are for each of us, Lord, that you would reveal those to us. That we would have the courage to admit, Lord, and confess and to say we're sorry. Lord, because we are secure in your grace and your love. Nothing we could do or have done, Lord, will ever make you love us more or make, us love, make you love us less. And so, Lord, let us rest in that truth in your grace today.
Lord, we can be honest about who we are because you know all of it and you love us anyway. Lord, help us with your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.